This episode is sponsored by Shoutout, a two-way text messaging and campaign management platform that provides analytics and facilitates conversational messaging that delivers, engages, and converts more. Send personalized campaigns from unique phone numbers to the message content itself, letting you brand your campaign to promote yourself and create your messages in a way that users are made to think you sent it personally for them. You can then monitor and improve your campaigns over time with real-time analytics. Start reducing messaging and campaign costs with cost-effective bulk SMS. Scale efficiently without having to worry about high costs. If you'd like to start using mass texting services with simple packages to choose from, visit GetShoutOut.com today. Hello everyone, this is your host, Akhil Jabbar, and welcome back to another episode of SaaS District. In today's episode, we'll be talking about how to avoid common mistakes that U.S. SaaS businesses make when expanding into Europe. Today, we have our guest, Alan Gleason, joining us. Alan is the founder of Work With Agility, which is a strategic B2B marketing consultancy with a passion for supporting tech startups to generate leads and to grow their businesses. Alan started his career in financial services, joining Barclays on their graduate program. He then joined Palo Alto Software, which was a leading SaaS company in 2004, where he acted as the managing director for the European subsidiary for a number of years. So more recently, Alan has worked for a number of of leading SaaS startups in a mix of full-time and consultancy engagement. So welcome, Alan. Alan, Super excited to have you on the SaaS District Show today. Thanks so much, Akil. Delighted to be on and looking forward to chatting. Awesome. So I want to get into, so because a lot of the, you know, listeners who are, who are listening today are probably based, you know, I think most of our demographic is actually based out of the U.S., um, SaaS founders, and a lot of their audience of who they target, their largest market is obviously the USA. But then, they, you know, there's that, that notion of thinking, you know, in their, in their roadmap, if they want expansion, you know, once they find product market fit, they want to go into a different market. What should be some, you know, if you can share, what are some things that SaaS founders should be thinking about and planning uh, if they're thinking about expanding in, internationally and specifically into the Euro- European market versus, you know, uh, just in, in the U.S.? Yeah, look, a great question. I mean, the first thing with SaaS, right, is there may not be a kind of a juncture in the road where you decide where you expand into countries because, because, of course, you might be winning business from the get-go from around the world, right? Because you're, the whole point of it is it's a SaaS application, right? So you can have users from different countries, I guess what starts happening though is as you go on your sort of scale-up journey, you know, many B2B SaaS companies will be VC backed, right? So there'll definitely be pressure and questions asked to the kind of senior exec around growth, growth potential and sort of, you know, all of a sudden Europe becomes interesting as a secondary market to start looking for growth opportunities. And of course, Europe is unlike America, right? Where if you pick North America and take US and Canada, you got 300 million in a fairly um, homogenous sort of unit, whereas Europe is very fragmented, which I guess is the first thing that people aren't always aware of, whereby, you know, there's many different languages. The different countries have different currencies. There's different population pools. So it's a very different sort of um, landscape. So I guess it is probably the second biggest market out of um, in SaaS after US. And then when you start looking at for countries, you probably got UK as number two and Germany starts cropping up. But then you find that there's weak demand for many countries in, in Europe. So there are some of the kind of characteristics that are different. 
Mm, okay. Yeah. I mean, we, we're doing that. One of our, you know, the companies we work with, uh, you know, started in the U.S., recently expanded into Canada, and you know, I think the plan for this year, Q4, is expansion into to the U.K. market, right? That's kind of the church. We, we look at C, and we get a lot of traffic. We're just not available yet, there yet, um, but so it's in our roadmap. But so going obviously international, there is real growth opportunity. We see that, but it obviously comes with you know all these challenges you have to think about. Um, can you share some of the the other common challenges that you've seen uh, that people face when branching out to some of these new markets? Yeah, look, I think it's it's tempting to try and do everything domestically, right, from from the US, but the reality is is Europe is complicated, right? Mm. So, I mean, the first point is is leverage, uh, you know, a resource from a contact that is physically in Europe, right? Because, you know, not everybody knows. Take for example that Europe um, has had challenges recently, where the biggest kind of domestic market, the UK, has left the European Union. And is therefore um, after going through a process called Brexit, which you know is not without its consequences. It means that London is no longer as attractive a venue for American companies as it once was two or three years ago, because you know that's um, you know that relationship is still very fraught, right? It's um, I'm based in London, but I'm from Ireland, so I get to wear two hats, and, and I can see that there's friction, there's tension. Um, there's implications beginning to arise that not everybody's thinking about. So I guess my first point is recognize that you can get insights from people in Europe that can help shape your decisions. You know, there's no doubt the UK is, is the second biggest market, but it trades in sterling, whereas most of the rest of Europe trades in the, in the euro, right? So it's a different currency straight away. Um, so I think there's a case of just being aware that even though the UK may be the biggest um, market from a kind of numbers point of view, you'll find that there's a playbook that involves a lot of companies with either Netherlands being Amsterdam or Dublin, Ireland, where they're serving the UK from those com- countries. So if you look at the sort of established tech companies, many of them have their fir- sort of first boots on the ground in places like Dublin. And then the final point is that there are agencies and government agencies, the idea is one, UKTI would be the UK version where they are very active in the US. So they're they're often the best port of call to try and get some insights into the market. But I guess the macro is look at your Google Analytics to start seeing where the traffic is coming from, then layer on top of that, where is the closed wind business coming from Europe? And then kind of decide, do you need boots in the ground or can you service it sort of remotely? If you do think that you need boots in the ground, then recognize that it is nuanced. And um, much as I love my time in London and I'm continuing to live here, Brexit unfortunately has created an extra layer of complexity that many not be aware of. So you need the local input to navigate some of these challenges. Mm-hmm. So do you, do you recommend typically that, you know, since you're boots in the ground, is that hiring somebody, finding some kind of consultancy or like, for example, you know, working with a company based out of France and they've done, you know, quite well there. I think they've gone close to 5 million ARR. And uh, I think last year they recently expanded into the U.S. market and the CEO actually moved down um, to Atlanta. He's spending time there and he's growing into that market. And, you know, that's, you know, showing for investment investors and, and all that, which you know, seems to be, you know, working. But do you, do you find that always, that's always necessary? It's a great point, Akil, and this is where I think there's a difference between um, European companies heading heading west to the US and looking at it from the other way, and, and it's not a like-for-like game, right? So the reality is, is that the US is by far the biggest, you know, B2B SaaS market that there is, right? So if you're a European startup with decent traction, you know, the lever up that gets you the scale is definitely 
the US play. Uh, and it also means, you know, with your example, I would be advocating that someone from the senior leadership team would move across. I don't think it's the same coming the other way because the reality is, is that, you know, from a European perspective, the uplift and scale up and going going west is significant. Coming back this way, it's not it's not as significant. So mm-hmm. I don't think you need the, the kind of C-suite, you know, um, all, all decamping to Europe. Um, but I would suggest, you know, one of the senior leaders considers that if they feel that, you know, that the need is there. But I guess the next kind of point is to go back to, you know, if it's the sales operation or sales function, you know, does that need field sales boots on the ground? And, and so that model, or can it be sold through, um, you know, people on demos and discovery calls who could be working remotely from Ireland or the UK? And then the other thing is that you can... You know, there is a very well-established model in Europe where you would outsource maybe some of the operation functions. So call centers may often be based in, in, in Europe where they are actually outsourced fully. And the kind of the agents working in these companies have the playbooks of the, of the parent company back in the US, but they're not full-time employees. So you get the kind of scale up and the leverage without the associated fixed costs coming with it. Yeah, that, that makes sense. And then, I mean, if, if you're thinking about, okay, expanding, let's say you're in the US, you're going to the UK, or you're thinking about, you know, you said Amsterdam, Germany. Um, you know, there's a lot of things you have to consider. One is, you know, hiring. So there's that kind of cultural perspective. There's how the clients interact with your product. Um, some want, you know, more hands-on involvement versus, you know, the West, they're okay with, you know, one quick demo. Uh, then there's regional differences. There's language. You mentioned currency. Um, what are some other things you have to think about? Let's, you know, let's use those examples of countries. Um, what are things I have to have to think about when, when expanding into there? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I go back to the data, right? And, and as I said, the data can be, you know, Google Analytics is a great source where you can kind of see the traffic from the, these different pockets. But, you know, what you'll find is, let's say, take Ireland as an example, or the Netherlands. Both of those are very small company, countries, right? So they don't have big markets to sell into, but you tend to have a lot of talent there. And, and taking Ireland, which I know well, you know, one of the things is a lot of the first wave of companies that landed from the U.S., came to places like Ireland. So my home city in, in, in Ireland is a place called Cork. I think there's almost 5,000 people working in Apple there. You know, Dell have a significant operation. You start going through the Facebooks of the world, the LinkedIn, the Google. So what you have is you've got a really rich talent pool of, of people that are working in these companies. So familiar with US culture, working in environments that have been trained up. Now, the slight difficulty for the rest of us working in B2B SaaS is there's kind of golden handcuffs with lots of these, right? Because they're being paid very, very well. But if you're looking, you know, going back a tack to kind of look at selling in, um, you know, there's small things you can get unstuck on. So, you know, it's tempting for the sales function to be focused on things like competition in the market and pricing. But things like where the data resides can be something that can come up and come unstuck on, right? So, you know, have you got servers in Europe because there's data privacy and data regulations that mean that could be making some buyers look at, you know, European offerings instead because they say, look, I don't want my data going to the US because maybe it's sensitive or maybe, you know, maybe they've got queries about it. So it is nuanced. That all said, what you will find is that European consumers will often turn to um, American companies, like if I looked at my tech stack, it's overwhelmingly European, right? So, you know, we kind of, you know, I'm Irish, so I speak English as my first language in the UK, but most of the professionals in in 
you know, professional buyers in, in sort of C-suite roles across Europe, most of them will be speaking English anyway. They will be familiar with interfaces that are, you know, essentially the, the interfaces of American software. So I'm not so worried about that. I think the one thing to kind of watch is, um, you know, I'm not hugely gone on, on crazy localization, right? So, you know, you can find... Um, certain people will want Spanish or Italian or Dutch or German versions. I, I, I tread caution going down that route. Mm. Yeah, I, I, I mean, it's it's a lot of work, and we don't know if the you know the results are you know worth the effort. Well, is what we're saying, right? Well, this is it, right? And there's mm-hmm. lots of hidden costs that you don't even envisage, right? So you can all of a sudden start getting random, um, you know, queries related to the software stack in, in in native languages, and and you may not have coverage on it, and demand may not be as strong as you think. You might have one or two people that are really vocal about. Um, about, oh, there'd be a huge market opportunity if, if you translate it into a different language. Again, from experience, you know, I've seen even traffic where we've done Spanish and Italian versions of the site, and they just don't get the traction um, mm. that, that you get. Now, again, look, it goes back to resourcing. If your resourcing is fairly abundant and you're Series C and you've got huge checkbooks, you know, go for it. Go and, and, and do all your translations into different languages. But for most, I, I, I issue caution and say, for the most part, you get a fairly far way along with your kind of core application. And what you might find is that there are some European competitors that that's their basis for positioning, right? They're offering some features or, or languages for their own domestic markets and let them have it, right? I just think that the ROI may not be there and therefore it's, you know, it's not the best decision. Yeah, yeah. It's funny you mentioned uh, Ireland, right? And you mentioned Apple and you know, all these big players who moved there. I think that was more for for tax uh, loophole that they they're inviting, but I think they're they're trying to 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 find a way to to, to get over that. And I think that's going to be short lived. But uh, anyways, <laughs> well, actually, I, I can I can you know, that's that's actually a great point, but it's it's probably not that accurate, right? No? So okay. no, no, because the reality is is that the first tranche that kind of went there, um, you know, go back to the for Dell when they first in Apple. It, it wasn't the primary motivation. So, so a couple of things. Ireland is 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 geography wise is pretty close to the US. It's five hours, you know, across culturally, it's very similar. Um, it's got a very strong education ethos. So there's a fairly high, um, you know, workforce. Sorry, a highly qualified workforce. It feels like you know, culturally, it feels quite similar. Um, obviously, English is the, is is the major language there, and yes, there was definitely some benefits around the tax system. They're gone now, but actually, the fact that they're gone hasn't really impacted. It's not like there's a flight of people leaving. And in fact, if anything, Ireland continues to, you know, grow significantly and grow on 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 kind of a trajectory that's you know ex, you know far in excess of everywhere else in Europe. Again, though, it's on a small population base, right? You're talking around 5 million. It's not like it's 300 million, right? So it's sure. uh, it's all relative. Yeah, yeah. Oh, good to know. And about the point you mentioned, right? Well, like you said, there's these people who are, who are players in their in their space. Um, for example, like we looked at this SEO tool that was just, you know, dominating in Germany. Everything was in, you know, Dutch and, and German and they're doing really well. Um, and, you know, but there's a lot of, you know, if you try to compete with the big guys like the SCM Russian and the Ahrefs, I mean, that's, that's going to be, you know, hard. If they try to come to the market, um, you know, they have to think about, right? Like you said, you have, if you're just going to, you know, translate your app, 
or just your website. I don't think that's enough, right? Like you, if you have the resources, you have to do all that, right? Like you have to do the proper you know, keyword research, have a team, um, you know, expansion. It, it needs a lot more investment of your time and planning versus, you know, just a simple website, right? Right. And like, let, let's look at the numbers, right? So like, let's say if you bring English into play, you've got obviously Canada, you've got Ireland, you've got the UK, you've got Australia, you've got South Africa, you've got New Zealand, you know, all of a sudden that English pool of speakers is pretty significant. But then I kind of go back to the other point is that, you know, most B2B SaaS um, applications are for an audience that is, you know, English is probably the second language for most of these. So actually most of them are as fluent as you and I write. So again, I'm talking buyer personas. It might be different if you're targeting a different demographic, but let's assume you're targeting a professional demographic that's purchasing software by and large, they're going to be speaking English. So I think you can make the false jump into localization thinking that there'll be a significant uplift because one or two people are vocal about it. All I'm saying is from experience, it comes with a heavy cost and I don't think you get the upside. But maybe that's me. Um, I do speak a little bit of French, so it's not as if I'm wedded to English as my only language. And I did German in school, so it's not as if I'm <laughs> biased about it. But I'm, I'm saying that the data that I've seen and the kind of the the analysis that I've looked at means that the upside is just not there in terms of the cost because a lot of the cost is hidden. And we've got simple things like Google Translate is now improving and, and kind of you can have hacks with that as well, right? Exactly. I mean, even I mean, one, one big market we kind of missed and we've seen that, you know, attracts a lot of traffic that you don't expect is, you know, India, for example, right? And most of those buyers are going to come in and, and you know, are, are going to come in on, on English as well. Um, is there any other kind of, you know, things you have to think about on the global level that you need to maybe custom build into your platform, um, and, you know, when you're designing for a specific region and, and expansion or is language just, you know, the main one you want to think about? Yeah, I mean, look, currency is one to just watch because you can get it unstuck there if, if you're trying to do, you know, $100 equals 100 euros equals 100 sterling, right? It's not, right? It, it, does, it doesn't <laughs> equate like that. So you need to be watching that because otherwise you're getting this price arbitrage where people are giving out because why is it so much more you know, expensive in Europe relative to, to the US, right? So you kind of got to watch the currency thing. And um, Look, it's hard. The other thing with, with, with SaaS, right, it's hard to make, you know, generalizations for every vertical or for every hundred horizontal application. Obviously, there could be legal issues mean that you have to have slightly different adoptions. But look, by and large, you know, the whole point of SaaS, right, is that the unit economics are favorable, but it's kind of, they're favorable to the point where you, you don't really want to be doing almost like bespoke development. I think that's where you kind of want to avoid that. You really want to be doing fantastic product that meets the needs of clearly defined personas and then you're going to have to front load a lot of cost into sales and marketing to kind of generate the leads in the volume of business to pay off obviously as the SaaS revenue comes in in, in in the years to come so i'm not a huge fan of too much bespoke development because again i think it takes you away from a cleaner unit economics point and I think there's often hidden costs that kind of come back to roost two or three years down the road or five years down the road when you, when you, you know, you can find language issues or you can find support tickets coming in or things that get broken because you can't really maintain too many code bases. Yeah, yeah, makes sense. And I, I know another point that, you know, with work with agility, one thing you do well is you work as a, you know, as an interim CMO with some B2B SaaS companies and you help them build their lead generation pipeline, the revenues. Uh, can, you, can you talk about a little bit, uh, you know, what does your typical playbook look like? 
And have you seen, you know, what, any differences on what's worked best in the US and the U, European market, uh, and if there's any differences in the in the US market when you're working with with the SaaS companies? Yeah, so a couple of questions baked in there. So if I don't get them in, um, come back to me. But but I guess the the kind of the main difference that sort of means that there are plenty of freelance external CMOs like me is in Europe is that you know it's a much more resource constrained environment is the first thing, right? So by that I mean is that we don't have the maturity of SaaS that you have in the US. We haven't probably had the full cycle of people go through the scale up journey, exit, and then come back around for round two. So. There's definitely um, um, issues around the kind of um, the, the, the environment, right? And I guess to elaborate on that is, you know, there's not quite the same deep pockets. So, you know, we, we might do a seed or Series A round, let's say, of a million dollars. You might do, a, you know, 10 million, right? So there's a kind of, there's a real resource constraint sort of sense for, for European SaaS compared to what I would perceive as resource abundance in, 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 in the US. So that kind of means it's, those two factors, right, the kind of lack of people that have gone through the experience of doing the scale up and coming out the other side means it's a tough hiring, you know, pool because you don't have the 150K, 200K checks to be writing to fill out your C-suite because you don't have the budget and you probably don't have the same caliber of, of execs that you get in the US. So it creates this opportunity for people like me that are sort of saying, okay, well, you don't need a full-time CMO because maybe you're around the Series A mark and wait till your Series B to fill the role, or maybe you are going to need some strategic input because otherwise you're hiring people that are marketing managers or digital marketing managers that don't have B2P and B2B and SaaS and they don't have the track record. So so that's kind of why there is a um, there are roles for people like me, maybe more so than than the US. In terms of the playbook, I guess look, look you know, firstly we take a lot of our lessons from the US, right? So we probably follow the same playbooks as most of them, your audience, right? And, you know, the, again, resourcing is always key, right? The playbook will vary depending on resourcing. Resourcing obviously means budget, but it also means execution capability in terms of people. But, you know, the main pillars of key are typically paid acquisition. And of course, you know, Google is the only show in town from a, from a browser point of view in, in many countries in Europe. Um, you might extend paid acquisition into LinkedIn where you're using that as a sort of um, lead gen for more softer lead gen. And by that, I mean almost like white paper downloads and promote content. Um, you do the content play, which is very much the organic, the keyword that you mentioned, SEM, Russian, Ahrefs earlier. So you're kind of using those tools. But of course, content is getting more challenging, right? Because we're all drowning in, in content, first and foremost. But secondly, you got a monopoly provider in Google that sort of would rather you paid for, for placement, right? So you can see over the years, you know, you're now getting less and less real estate on page one. It's mostly paid, but you still will do content. That's sort of the second pillar. And then outbound is the third where you're using, you know, agencies or you're doing it in-house to just try and, and spike demand from that. So, so they're the kind of three main pillars around lead gen. And then, of course, you're doing things like brand awareness and you might do PR and you might do events and you might do webinars. You know, so the playbook is essentially the same. Mm -hmm. I'm going to pause there because I've given you a lot of content. Do you want to jump in on any of those or, or do you want, to, want no, me to no, keep going on other areas? No, I think that, that makes sense. So, I mean, like you said, resources are constrained as, as hiring as a CMO. Maybe you're, you have to think about you know, how you want to invest it, but it's an important role. Um, now, if you have a CMO or let's say you're a CEO in, in the U.S., and you're maybe not moving to Europe, but you want to expand into a market there, but and you want to hire a team there, right? I mean that's important. Uh, how do you suggest them? Where, where, or how do you find help find 
great talent and then building the right team to help them scale into that new market. Do you have any thoughts there that you can share? Yeah. Again, look, there's a couple of points to make. I mean, first of all, there's definitely some managing expectations. It's a challenging hiring environment, right? So particularly for most B2B SaaS companies where they don't have huge brand recognition, right? Even if you hit a series B, you know, we, okay, we're seduced by the unicorns, but, you know, many and most B2B SaaS companies don't, don't have the brand awareness. So, so that's definitely um, a challenge, right? Um, mm. The, the other kind of thing linked to that is, you know, the the market to sort of source candidates, you, you know, you would definitely be looking at using recruiters. Um, but again, it's a very, very fragmented market. So it can be challenging to find, you know, good recruiters. But what I would say is I would use boutique specialists that are B2B SaaS orientated rather than broader digital marketing. I think you are now beginning to see certain recruiters go into verticals. So, I mean, I, I, there's one called Camel that's related to Notion Capital, which is a big B2B SaaS investor here in the UK. They're an example of a boutique B2B SaaS company. Um, but then what I would say is, is this freelance model is quite common in the UK and Ireland in particular, where there's a bit of people at my kind of level whereby, you know, um, it's they don't want all their eggs in one basket. They've done the head of marketing or they've done the CFO role. They're probably working remotely. They're, you know, they're they're interested in in, in supporting companies, um, and they can probably provide some initial support around making some fast track decisions. So, I kind of go back to my kind of key point, which is trying to identify a couple of of people. Where do you find them? And um, I guess you know one way is is looking at perhaps some of the C suite that may have contacts from Europe that they've worked with, right? So I'd kind of use your role of that to use your LinkedIn first level connections. I think that's kind of key. Using the personal contact is definitely where I'd recommend going first. Um, and, and that's a really great starting point. But also some of these agencies that I mentioned. So the IDA, and you can put in the show notes afterwards, which is, which is the Irish Development Agency, will have a very big presence, particularly in the West Coast in the US. And they're a, a mine of information. And UKTI, again, would be similar. That's the UK body. I'm not as familiar with the bodies of, of, of other countries like, let's say, the Netherlands and Germany. But again, those two Ireland and UK, those government bodies would be a very good source. of And they have actually people physically on the West Coast in, in the major cities that can sort of help uh, make introductions to kind of get the ball, ball rolling. Hmm. So if I'm a, I'm a SaaS company based in the US, I come to you and say, hey, Alan, uh, help me expand into the, the uh, you know, Ireland, into this market here. Uh, you know, we're going to hire you as an interim CMO and uh, you know, build out our team. We need some content marketers. We need some paid specialists. I'm assuming you have some people you've worked with and you recommend and you'd help them build that team. Um, but then they'll, they might That's get fine. to a point, right? So, okay, so the, glad, glad you clarified that. Um, but they might get to a point where I was like, okay, thanks for, you know, you've helped us grow. We've now raised our Series C and we want to hire a full-time CMO role. Now you're kind of in that position it's like, okay, we need some, you know, in a way to replace you because you don't want to be in the locked in, be full-time. Uh, how do you help them make that transition to hire somebody full-time? And what, what can they expect to pay? You know, what are the kind of going salaries for a full-time experienced, uh, you know, CMO in, in, in the market today? Yeah. So look, I'm like a SaaS model myself, right? I do get churned out. And in some ways that's a success factor because, you know, there's a growth journey that I want to take the clients on and, you know, at your point, one of the motivations that got me doing what I did is I wanted to de-risk and not have all my eggs in one basket because, 
you know, the, the tenure for most CMOs and VC backs, B2B SaaS companies is probably a couple of years, right? They're fairly demanding roles and um, quite challenging. So, you know, so for me, it's, it's a natural transition for most. And in fact, I did it with one of my clients about a year ago, and I was very much integral to that transition. So I could see that the, the growth was to the point where we did need a full-time CMO. Um, you know, I essentially was involved in the hiring process. I was in, involved in the, in the creation of the job spec. Um, and, you know, my playbook was very much one of, you know, show me, don't tell me, because sales and marketing hires, particularly senior ones, are very difficult, right? Because marketers can market themselves as well. Salespeople can sell themselves well. So, you know, I'll often look for the, what I call the digital footprints that I can Google the people and see, okay, am I seeing them on podcasts? Are they writing blog content? Can I see evidence of them writing blogs? Can I see their digital footprint or are they attending SASTOC, which is the big event in Europe? Um, but what I would say, just a couple of words of caution is you, you won't find that many that will have gone on the scale-up series BCD kind of, kind of growth journey. There's just not huge numbers of them out there, right? So you may have to make a concession on that where you are, you know, um, which, which is a couple of implications. So one is you may want to be hiring someone that's, you know, that has not had the, the kind of resourcing team size or the budgets that you, you want to put into Europe. So, but the flip side is that maybe they're only doing execution on behalf of the, the CMO, the head CMO that's back in the States, right? So maybe the role is really more of a delivery arm or an execution arm, in which case you probably don't need, because you can't really run two CMOs in parallel, you, you know? So, so maybe the playbook really is you've got your, your, your CMO in the States, but really you're looking for a senior marketing lead in Europe, but they are an order taker or an execution arm in, instead, which probably changes the dynamics, you know, a small bit. Then in terms of what you'd expect to pay, again, you know, the range would be quite wide, but I suspect around the 100,000 US dollars is probably a good starting point. And then it will veer up or down depending on the levels of experience. Yeah, yeah, that's what and I figure. I've seen some even in the US, you know, some for for senior one, you'll pay up, you know, up to you're looking around closer to three hundred K. So yeah, they're they're not easy to find, right? Yeah. No, I mean I think I, I'd say the salaries are probably higher in, in the US, right? So, so you probably wouldn't be paying the same amount. Mm -hmm. But I kind of go back to the point, mm. you know, that the if the European SaaS lead is largely or the marketing lead, um, Akil, is largely execution and maybe doing right. a bit of localization. It's a slightly different skill set. It's not C-suite strategic. I'm sitting at the top table managing because then it just doesn't budget. work. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's different when you're you're managing the budget, having to allocate it, and and uh, be accountable, right? Versus just doing the, the execution. That's what you. Yeah, and, and and so so that's kind of how I would think of that. But again, have you had any of your portfolio clients have had these challenges, or how they looked at it, or? Um, I mean, yeah, we typically, you know, that's kind of how we work with them, kind of more acting of a, you know, lead CMO, you know, kind of CMO fractional role. Um, we haven't had to hire, yeah. but, you know, we've talked to people, you know, that like, for example, looking to hire in the US and that's what they said, right? Like typically they're looking for, you know, a good person, you know, close to 250, 300, right? So yeah. It's, yeah. Uh, it's definitely not cheap compared to, to Europe, right? Yeah. And of course, like the other thing to bear in mind is, is depending on where you're on your journey, you know, different skill sets are needed, right? So I'd argue you know, in the early days, you're not going to pay that kind of money, but you're looking for more of a product marketing specialist, right? So they got to be really validating the assumptions and talking to customers and sort of doing all that good stuff. You know, as you kind of get out of that sort of product market fit piece into the next piece, you're looking at very much someone that's hard on lead gen and, and sort of that's the kind of core skill. 
And then almost when you start hitting the, the kind of series C level, you're almost looking at the brand awareness and some of the strategic stuff. So again, it depends where on the journey, but they are different skill sets, which kind of plays back to why the tenure can be, you, you know, quite um, short in, in, in many of these roles. And, and actually there's a great article by Tom Tungus, who's a leading US VC that writes on B2B SaaS. And he'll often talk about the biggest mishire in, in B2B SaaS is the first marketing hire where you hire for, for growth when really you need a product marketing person to really validate the assumptions and not try to get into sales mode too quickly. Yeah, that's right. You're completely right. Um, cool. This, this, has been, this has been really good. Uh, I really appreciate you, you know, sharing all these insights. I, th- I think our, our audience will enjoy it. Uh, so, Alan, I want to shift gears here and move towards the, the fun part of the interview, which is the, the, the rapid fire <laughs> kind of more personal question. So, you ready, ready to roll for that? Sounds good. Like he'll throw them at me. All right, let's do this. All right. What's uh, one activity you enjoy doing outside of work that gets you into flow state? Yeah, so I'm a rugby coach. So um, rugby isn't that well known, probably well known in, in coast, right, on, on the uh, East Coast, and particularly around Boston and New York. But um, I'm a rugby coach over here and uh, coaching under 12s. So, you know, it uh, gets me out in the fresh air. It's um, all about teamwork and camaraderie and the values of the game and the skills so i do enjoy that i must say it's, it's a nice um, break away from the desk nice nice do you still get your physical tackles in there or are you just you know pointing people to get hit <laughs> i wish yeah with 12 year olds you definitely don't want to be tackling them so no it's, it's a bit of aerobic on, on running around the pitch with a whistle and uh, shouting but that's about it Nikhil. nice i love it um what was your vision when you first started working uh, when you started you know building work with agility and how has that evolved over time to what it is today? Yeah, I mean, I mean, the vision was, I like helping people, right? So that's kind of in my DNA. And I like sort of felt actually being able to help people, you know, is it was important, right? Secondly, I had a significant amount of experience in B2B SaaS. And I go back to the context earlier in that, um, you know, there isn't a huge amount I mean, it grows every year, of course, but it's still a relatively new industry sector. I mean, I, I worked in software when, there was a 56k dial-up, right, where you're, you know, you had to connect to the web through an AOL or a free serve disk, right? I remember selling software in boxes of software in, in retail stores. So I've kind of been on the journey. So I could see um, that I had kind of picked up a lot of knowledge over the years. And a part of it was also the, this frustration with the tenure, no, no matter how good you were doing in the role, SaaS companies are long-term games and, and you're probably never going to get to stay on the 10 years of the of the journey, right? So you kind of end up in this weird cycle where you're churned out of roles after a couple of years, which again is quite unsettling and you don't have job security. And so there were some of the motivations. And I guess I didn't have a grandiose vision, right? So I guess if I was critiquing where I've got to is, you know, I didn't want to build a huge agency, right? My passion is SaaS, so I didn't want to be managing lots of people, um, which has meant I haven't scaled and grown the business like I probably could do or would do, right? So I tend to use lots of partners that I, you know, use to to, to bring in, but I haven't taken it on a, on a huge growth trajectory. But part of that is, you know, is not playing the lifestyle card, but I have a young family and I, I'm, I'm recognizing that there's a balance to everything, right? So I really enjoy what I do. Is there a scale up at some point? There absolutely is. And I will undoubtedly do my own SaaS play at some point, but... Um, I'd rather kind of not scale an agency. I'd rather pick my time, come out with um with, with a B2B SaaS company myself and, and then concentrate all my energies on that. 
And the kind of final point, and that is, I think there's a real emergence of what I call vertical B2B SaaS. So the first tranche of SaaS was very much horizontal, like accountancy software or expense management, where you could, you know, span lots of industries. I think now you're beginning to see the emergence of vertical niche SaaS shop and opportunities, which are, they're slightly different play, but you probably don't need the same level of investment. Your growth ambitions are probably different. You don't need big VC backing. So I think I'll carve out a, v to, sorry, a vertical SaaS play myself at some point. And, um, you know, that's where I'll get to. Nice. Did you say you'd have a, a niche that we're, or, or a vertical where you're, you're, you're better at your industry? Like, for example, us, it uh, seems like, you know, marketing tech is where we're at. I mean, we have the, the expertise there and we get a lot of attraction and people are interested in working with us uh, or selling to us or, you know, getting investment and because, you know, it just seems like what we're good at. But you know, if we went into, you know, like fintech as, you know, we probably wouldn't be as familiar as, you know, maybe somebody like you. So what would you say your areas your strongest at? Yeah, look, look, it's a great question. So um, again, I've been fortunate, right, that my, you know, by going down this model, I've been exposed to a whole range of different industries. So if I look at my current portfolio base, one is a leading cybersecurity company that's transitioning away from kind of professional services through to, you know, a, a SaaS play. Another one is a leading procurement company. So it's a sourcing and um, optimization uh, company that's using artificial intelligence. Um, I've got another one that's in performance management. Um, uh, so, so like actually I span lots of areas. I probably don't have a great answer for you. I probably do need to kind of verticalize. I guess the marketing tech one, which you quite rightly point out is, is the one that I would probably be most focused on, particularly because I'm using a lot of these tools. So you know, tools like you, you referenced earlier, SCM, Russian, Ahrefs, they're really, really brilliant tools. So I think that would be my area of specialism. But, but sometimes I probably don't need to be the deep domain experts because by dint of the fractional CMO role, you know, I work best when there is execution capability that needs to be led. So when there's people in the team that can kind of, that are the domain experts, but just need some sort of strategic direction. So, um, so yeah, not, not probably not your, not, not my best answer for you, but, um, um, a broad mix, but definitely marketing will probably be the, the narrower one. It makes sense. Uh, Alan, what's one piece of advice you wish you had known and would tell your 25-year-old self? Yeah, you, you stumped me on, uh, I was thinking about this, because um, you, you had mentioned this previously, um, or you had sent me the question, and I guess I was trying to play back to when I was 25, right? And, um, you know, that's quite, you know, 20 years ago, right? So it was, um, it was some time ago. And look, it was a very different world there. I was back, you know, in banking at the time, working in financial services. Um, you know, my background was economics and marketing. I'd just gone to business school. Um, I think when I reflect back, I made a career move into software, which, which, uh, which I really loved. But actually on reflection, I didn't take a lot of counsel on that move. So the kind of transition to software was serendipitous that software has kind of gone like this. But, you know, I left a, a blue chip. Barclays, one of the biggest companies in the UK with a very, you know, strong career path and, you know, very, you know, major enterprise. And I jumped into US subsidiary, which was a small startup essentially for software. And I guess it took me on a completely different path but I probably didn't give it enough time in terms of thinking. So if, if I was to give myself advice, I'd say, you know, definitely experiment in your early 20s, but try and get some outside counsel for someone to play through the implications of the decision because I probably was seduced by a title and some salary when actually, 
you know, I was completely taken on a different trajectory, um, which could have could have worked out pretty badly, right? If I backed the wrong horse, so right. so that's the advice. Nice, I like that. Um, what are some of the biggest challenges you're currently facing uh, in in order to continue to grow work with agility? Meaning, what keeps you up at night these days? Yeah, look, look, I think like there's almost way too much for marketing function, right? I touched on earlier, right? Where we're always very resource constrained. And prioritization is difficult. And on the flip side, you know, there's always this desire for significant growth. But what's happened is there's been a collapse in the barriers to entry for SaaS startups. So all of a sudden, nearly every vertical I'm in is flooded with, 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 with entrance. So, you know, the landscape is almost arguably becoming more difficult because, you know, you, you know, one of the easy playbooks, of course, is for often American VC back companies to come in and not need to be profitable, right? They go, it's a winner takes all market. I can just, you know, you go go do the playbook that I talked about earlier, but you know, be happy to pay 50 bucks a keyword um, you know, versus five bucks, which we're targeting. So the bit that keeps me awake is that it's 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 sort of you 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 know, you can be really on top of your game, but the context can be a very challenging one. So I guess you know, growth will always be there and it's what keeps me awake. Are we growing my client base? Are they growing fast enough? And most will, will always want to be growing faster, but often the context of one is it's challenging. So how do you keep ahead of the game? So they're the things that kind of keep me awake, I guess. Yeah, makes, makes sense. Who or what are some of the best three resources? These can be books, uh, mentors, or people you follow the space who you, you'd say been the most instrumental to your success over these last few years. Yeah, I mean, I've probably um, been weak on mentorship. Again, if I personally reflected on my journey, I, I haven't really um, engaged with with having a mentor. Right? I've mentored lots of people, but I haven't really engaged with having a mentor myself. So, so that's definitely something I, I should have done, right? So, so I get that's a that's a shortfall. In terms of you know, I devour content. I think you have to if you're if you're working in B two B SaaS. So, you know. I really like the work of people like David Scott. So he's on a matrix in Boston and, you know, he writes some really interesting, really interesting content. Tom Tungus, I alluded to him earlier, another great um, writer. Mark Suster, again, another VC um, from Upfront, you know, writes both sides of the table. Again, a prolific writer. All of those have probably petered off. They're not writing as, as much as they used to, but some of their early stuff was, was phenomenal. And then Avanish, I don't know if you know Avanish Koshik of Volkham's Razor. I'm signed up to his, you know, monthly newsletter. It's a phenomenal resource. So, so they're my kind of go-to um, resources when I want to kind of keep in touch of what, what's going on. I guess the, the thing is, there's a heavy male bias there. I'm aware of that. There's a heavy US bias there. I'm aware of that. Um, that's the landscape. Right? I'm, I'm always happy to diversify and um, if there's others that I should be reading. I mean, I, I like April Dunford, um, who's um, was obviously female and, and writes about positioning and has got some some great stuff. So there's some of the people that I, I like to read. Cool. Well, uh, we'll add those people to our, to our show notes and their links to their, their resources that people want to check out. Uh, Alan, what does success mean to you today? Whether that's you know, personally, business, financial life, is, there's no right answer. Yeah, I mean, I, I think... Um, it's a number of things, right? You know, health, you know, it starts getting really high up the up the chart as you started getting a bit older, right? If you take it for granted at your 20s, but as you get older, you kind of, um, you start trying to, to do your best to, to try and improve that, right? That's success, right? If you're, if you're healthy and happy, I think they're the primary motivators. So 
that to me, you know, they become bigger. So that brings in family and friends is kind of kind of also on a, on the same level. Um, so there's some of the metrics. So there's no doubt it changes as you as you get older. Um, and I think there are some of the things that I think are, are success now. Whereas in your earlier years, I think there's definitely this kind of peer comparison and beat the neighbor. And um, I think that's, you know, not healthy. And, and it's kind of, it goes on a lot. But as you kind of get older and a little bit wiser, you realize that, you know, success isn't something you measure by comparing against your neighbor. In fact, that's the worst thing you should do. Success needs to be more intrinsic and sort of motivated by things that make you happy without worrying about others. Exactly. Love it. It's for yourself, not for others. Nice. Uh, this, this has been fantastic. I really appreciate you jumping on, on the show today. There's lots of insights for people to learn. Um, you know, where, where can founders, SaaS founders listening in who want to get in touch with you, learn more about you and, and, and your company if they want to chat? Where, where's the best place to get in touch? Yeah, so my website is Work With Agility. So um, I think you'll spell it out in, in the show notes. The spelling is fairly straightforward, but Work With Agility. If you Google Alan Gleason, I think I've done a good job on SEO. So I think you'll find me pretty easily. So uh, G-L-E-E-S-O-N. Um, so I pretty much show up for um, for that as well. Okay, awesome. Workwithagility.com. If you guys want to say hi to Alan, make sure to, ch- to reach, him out, reach out to him. Thank you so much once again, Alan. Much, much appreciated. Thanks so much, Akila. Enjoy chatting to you. Cheers. Thank you all for watching this episode and joining SAS District today. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and hit the bell for future episodes where we interview top leaders in the SaaS industry. If you're a SaaS company looking to grow and unlock the true value of your business, get in touch with us at Horizon Capital and myself or one of our consultants will provide a free assessment to help you get there and hit your goals. If you have any feedback or suggestions for this podcast, please comment down below and help us improve our content for you all. Thanks again and see you on the next one.